you, Father, as always. We thank you at the beginning of our prayer because thanks, Father, is the response to your grace and your mercy. And thanks, Father, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in each of us. Thank you, Father, for all the many gifts and blessings. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to be counted your children. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather weekly and to study and to pray and worship and fellowship. So many people, Father, around the world are under threats, threats of death or torture, of humiliation, if they would even speak the name of Jesus publicly. And here we are, Father, with the free and open opportunity to come and assemble in your name and to worship publicly. And forgive us, Father, when we don't make that the priority. And thank you, Father, that we have that chance to do so again today. May we take this time in your word as an opportunity, Father, to sit at your feet, to hear you speak to us through your word, to know that it was prepared before the foundations of the earth so that we would hear it on a given day and learn from it. Let us put our full mind and heart and and effort into this study, Father, so that we may gain what you have for us in it. And let me, Father, speak through the power of the Spirit and not by merely the words of men. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 12. We are fully into the story of Abram now, looking at what God does to the life of this man. Abram's a fascinating character. He's a very intelligent man. He's a very obedient man for the most part. In fact, I think sometimes we forget just how sophisticated men in Abram's day were. There's a story, it's not actually in, in the Bible as it turns out, but it's, it's one that's been handed down over the generations. Abraham had gone to his son at one point and asked to get his son's help to, to upgrade his abacus to uh, Windows 7. And, and you can understand why this wouldn't be in the Bible. It's not something people talk about very often anymore. But Isaac, being the gentle son that he was, took his dad aside and said to him, Father, you can't run Windows 7 on your abacus. It's too old. It's out of date. It's too slow. He says... It doesn't have the power to handle that. You're, you're going to have to upgrade. If you want to run at Windows 7, you're going to have to buy the Abacus Pro. And you're going to have to uh, make sure it has at least 8 megabytes of memory. And, you know, I know you can find the Abacus Pro at, at Bethel Buy down the road, but you're going to have no hope at all of... I, I came up with that one myself. Bethel Buy. You're going to have no hope at all of finding so much RAM. And, of course, Abraham, the man of faith, looks calmly at his son and says... Isaac, God will provide the ram. And now, the people who are laughing are the people who've read far enough ahead in Genesis and have read chapter 22, because if you haven't read chapter 22, I can understand why you wouldn't necessarily laugh. In fact, even if you had read chapter 22, I can understand why you wouldn't laugh at that. Sorry, you know, that's as good as I get. So chapter 12... Chapter 12, we're going to talk now about Abram, Abram, as he's still called at this point, the man of faith, beginning where we left off in chapter 12, verse 4. At this point, he's been called by God, he's been given the covenant, at least at a very early stage. We studied last week the basic framework of that covenant. We looked at the promises that were given in verses 1 through 3. We saw that Abram was given promise for land, he was given promise for posterity, a family name, a family that would come from his name and a blessing that he would eventually reach the whole world through what God has given him in this promise, that he would bless all nations. That was the framework. There's more yet to come. In fact, there's still a lot more that we need to learn about the Abrahamic covenant. God actually restates this covenant to Abram on numerous occasions throughout the story of Abraham in in the book of Genesis. And so we're going to wait for those future revelations to study more about the covenant and learn as Abram does 
what God has in store for him. But meanwhile, today what we'll study is what Abram does initially in response to receiving God's call and these promises. That's where we go now in chapter 12. Read with me in chapter 12, verses 4 through 6 as we open our study today. Verse 4, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And we'll pause there as we look at those verses. So in response to God's instructions to depart, Abram first leaves Ur. We heard of that at the end of chapter 11. He eventually reaches Haran and then later leaves Haran as we just read. The evangelist Stephen back in the book of Acts, if you remember chapter 7 of Acts as he recounts the history of Israel, he tells us that Abram waited on his father's death in Haran before he moved further on from Haran and reached Canaan. Now you might hesitate at this moment when you look at the story of Abram and the way he moved and stopped in Haran and so on. And you might ask yourself, was he being fully obedient to the call that God gave him back in Ur? And I'm thinking specifically about the way God said you were to leave your relatives and leave your father's house and go to a place I will show you. And we know that what Abram actually did when he heard that call in Ur was he left with his father and with his nephew Lot, and he goes to Haran, and he stays there until his father dies. And though we don't have an exact timeline for how long he stayed in Haran, a rough estimate says it was at least decades. Decades. So you could look at that timeline, and you might stop and say, was Abram really doing what God had asked him to do? At least, was he fully obedient? Well, the short answer is he was obedient, but with some qualifications. For example, in the case of his father, Terah, Abram would not have been able to stop his father from joining him, even if he felt he shouldn't allow it, even if Abram felt like it was wrong. How was he going to stop his father? His father was the patriarch. In an Eastern culture, in a patriarchal culture, there would have been no choice, no hope for Abram to have stopped his father. That would have been disrespectful. In fact, you could argue the opposite. That in that culture, it was the son's responsibility to obey his father, to take his father's needs into account, and to do what was right and honoring by his father. Now, his father was from Haran. So when he hears his son say, I'm going to be going back in that direction, it would have been natural for his dad to say, you know, I've wanted to go back home many years. This is my opportunity. I'm going with you. And so Abram did the right thing. I think it goes deeper than that, though. I think Abram was actually following God's call in the way that he escorted his father back to Haran. And I say that on the basis of something Stephen said when he relates this story. Back in Acts again, 7, verse 3, this is what he says. Stephen says, And God said to Abram, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then Abram left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died... God had him move to this country in which you are now living. If you listen to that phrase carefully, it makes a very strong case. It implies very strongly that God was directing Abram all the way through these steps. And God directed him into Haran and held him there until his father died. And then, as Stephen says, God had him move then, after his father died, to this country. 
The suggestion is that God was making each of these steps with a purpose in mind. The purpose being that he would come into Canaan and he would come without his father, but yet at the same time he would be honoring to his father. That he permitted, essentially, God permitted Abram to fulfill his duties as a son to his father, even as he was obeying God's call to enter into Canaan. So in the case of Terah, I don't think there's any reason for us to indict Abram as less than fully obedient. Now, the question of Lot, however, is a little trickier. Lot is Abram's nephew because Abram's brother Haran has died. But we know from Scripture that Lot is an adult. Certainly by the time that they leave for Canaan, after they leave Haran, Lot is a full-grown adult. So though he may have been in Abram's care at some point following his father's death, That time has passed, and now he is a full-fledged adult able to care for himself. So when Abram leaves from Haran, taking Lot with him, the question becomes, is this a form of disobedience in allowing Lot to accompany him? We're going to see in a few chapters that Abram's decision to allow Lot to accompany him into Canaan has some long-lasting consequences for Abram as well as Lot. And those consequences do suggest that Perhaps this was a slip-up on Abram's part. Perhaps he should have been more insistent that Lot not accompany him. But we'll wait until we get to those chapters to fully reconcile the question of whether this was the right thing to do. For now, let's look at verse 4. When we're told here that Abram is 75 years old when he leaves Haran and departs for Canaan. That raises a question. If you were noticing carefully in chapter 11 some of the ages, and granted, I don't expect that you're keeping track on this level. That's my job. That's why I'm up here. In chapter 11, we're told that Terah was 205 years old when he dies in Haran. And if we subtract 75, the age that Abram was when Terah died, from 205, you get 130. That would mean that Terah, his father, was 130 when he became the father of Abram. So he was 130 when he had Abram. He lives another 75 years. He dies. That would mean Abram was 75 at that time when his father died. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is that in Genesis 11:26, we're told that Terah was 70 years old when he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So which is it? Was he 70 years old when his sons came along? Or was he 130 years old? when his sons came along. can't be both. Many have looked at this and come to the conclusion that this is evidence that there are contradictions in Scripture. Here's a, a place they might take you on a given day when they're arguing over the truth of Scripture, and they would say, look, see this? This proves the Bible can't be trusted. Now, I'll tell you there's no contradiction, but before I tell you why, let me tell you why I care to even discuss this. Because I have seen not just here, of course, but in many places, these supposed contradictions from those who have less than pure faith in God's word or for those who have a sincere interest in trying to tear down God's word. They will take you to places like this. They will point out the contradiction or what they think is a contradiction, and then they will do the aha. And the next thing, of course, they will start to tell you is that all that you've based your faith on is a lie, or at least some part of it. I've had that experience. I've had those conversations. Now, in the moment, you may not have the answer. In fact, I'm sure there are other places I could take you in which there are contradictions or supposed contradictions at which you would look and say, I'm not sure how you reconcile that, Steve. Maybe you're looking at this one saying that right now. How do you reconcile this? But I will tell you, the more you study these and learn the answers, 
the more your faith is built to withstand those critiques because you'll find yourself in those moments saying to yourself, look, I may not have the answer to your question right now. I may not fully understand this issue just yet, but I've seen this kind of thing before. And every time it's been, it's been reconciled to show that the word of God is trustworthy. And therefore, I can stand on that faith in the moment and wait till I get the full answer and not let these small confusions in the text cause me to doubt what I know is true. For example, in this case, in verse 26 of chapter 11, where we're told that Terah was 70 when he became a father, look at the verse in detail. It says he was 70 when he became the father of three sons. Well, either they're triplets or it's simply saying that the first of the three came along when he was 70 and he must have had some distance, some time that went by before the next one and the next one. So then it becomes a question of which one was the first one. Now, some scholars look at verse 26 and they say, well, Abram is first to be mentioned, so it must be he was the first child born, hence the contradiction. But that makes no sense when you look at what Moses has been doing all the way along. What order has Moses been putting sons in as he recounts genealogies? By order of birth? Not usually. What was his usual practice? By order of importance. By order of who's most important to the story. Abram is most important, so he's placed first. And that follows for the next two. Who is the next in line in that list? Nahor. Because Nahor lives and later becomes another part to the story of Genesis. Haran is last in the list because Haran dies and we hear nothing more about him in the text of Genesis. So it's in order of importance from greatest to least. It would make sense to think that that might also be the reverse order of age because Haran, being the oldest, had the son, Lot, when no one else had any kids yet. Nahor is next oldest. Abram may be the youngest. The point is that because we don't know who was first, then we can let the text reconcile for us. Abram was born when Terah was 130, and Abram's brothers were born starting when Terah was 70. That's the reconciliation of the text. It works fine. It works perfectly. It's consistent with what Moses has been doing and the way he's presented genealogy. It does not require that we assume Abram was born first. So in verse 5, Abram and his entourage enter Canaan. So let's look at this for a moment. Abram has obeyed. He's left his father's house. That was his father's ancestral home in Haran. But there's something more important there when we hear that he has left his father's house. Left his father's house. God is asking Abram to leave behind his father's inheritance. What is an inheritance today? Well, besides the house and the, the junk that you just sell at the estate sale anyway, besides all that stuff, it's the bank account, isn't it? It's money. But what is the inheritance in Abram's day? It's basically three things. It's land, it's animals, and it's servants. That's inheritance. You can't take the land with you, which is the bulk of the inheritance. And you aren't going to take the servants and the animals off of the land if you don't have land. There's no evidence that Abram takes anything with him when he leaves Ur, except his own family. But we're told here that as he enters into the promised land, he is coming with something that he has accumulated while he's been in Haran. So God has asked Abram to leave his inheritance behind, and in place of what he would have had had he stayed in Ur, he is going to go to a new place, trusting only in God's promise to provide a better inheritance. And here you see Abram now taking the first affirmative step of faith. You know, it doesn't take much talent as a preacher 
to look at this moment in Abram's life and draw a parallel into the lives of Christians today, does it? God asking men and women of faith to serve him by walking away from the things we value in this world for the hope of something better coming in eternal terms. He does this all the time, does he not? Let's use the most obvious example. He will call missionaries to leave the comforts of the Western lifestyle and the culture they're familiar with, and he will drop them into foreign cultures in which there is no support structure or very little, no familiarity with with the new world or very little, and put them in dangerous places sometimes. Our most recent experience as a church with our small group that just came back from Juarez is a good example of that. I mean, they weren't there for long, maybe, but it was still the same kind of experience. He will call pastors, he will call teachers, he will call elders, he will call volunteers in churches, and he will ask us to sacrifice free time, sleep on Sunday morning or any other day, for that matter, to serve in the body of Christ. Small things when you get down to it, but that's, again, God saying to someone in faith, Listen to my call and serve in the way I've directed you to serve, giving up something in the world as a result. How about the fact that he calls children in the faith to sacrifice their dignity and their personal safety when they preach the gospel or live as witnesses? And he calls all those in the faith to sacrifice financially at times to support the work of ministry. These are all shared ways in which the body of Christ receive God's direction and take that to heart and live it out. And in doing so, we've got to give up something, something in the world. Abram's just showing us that in one big picture here, but it's the same for all of us. And I want you to notice how he enters Canaan. We're told he has a family, he has possessions, he has servants. Isn't that interesting? He has left behind essentially those things, but as Moses points out, he had accumulated these things in the progress of answering God's call. Even though God called him to leave behind his father's inheritance for the hope of something better in eternity... Even then, in the meantime, he's beginning to bless Abram in simple financial ways. Abram walked away from his father's estate, but God still ensured that he accumulated at least some measure of provision because he's willing to bless us materially when it suits his glory. Not to the point that we're all rich, not as a result of something we do or say, not some magic incantation, not because we name it and claim it, none of that nonsense. But for his own glory, when it suits his purpose, he may return to us some measure of favor as we walk in faith with him. That's at his discretion. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, he says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But first, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our prosperity in this world is not the Lord's first priority. But he wants to make sure it's not our first priority either. So if we show him that our first priority is seeking his kingdom and righteousness and following him, then we can trust that as our heart shows that we're not focused on wealth, he will be freer to give us what we need, knowing it's not going to corrupt us or pull us off the path. But if it's all we care about, then he's right not to put it in our laps. Because he's only tempting us with where our weakness is. So as we notice, Abram steps away from the world God called him out of. He steps into the world God directed him to. God is there still with him the whole way, walking and providing. Now, as he enters Canaan, what does Abram do? We're told he walks through the land, taking stock of it. That's basically what he's doing. He's surveying the land, walking through the land. 
How strange this must have felt for him and perhaps even looked to other people. Imagine it in your mind's eye. You have a man, Abram, the head of a single family, walking into Canaan, a land occupied by powerful tribes who've been there for generations, descended from the grandson of Ham. And he's walking through the land, essentially claiming to own it, or at least having an inheritance in it. And yet he has no visible means of forcing out its occupants. Imagine somebody walking into your backyard, walking around, looking at the bushes, measuring the pool, doing things that you wonder, honey, is this a utility guy here? Is somebody here for work? Well, why do we have a guy in our backyard? Should I call the police? And the guy says, well, God gave me your land. I'm just uh, checking it out. God, you say, have you checked out with the local probate court? Because this is mine. Oh, yeah, for now, but God's given it to me. That's what this guy's doing only on a large scale with the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites, by the way, were not friendly people generally, pagan people. To the world, what did it look like? It looked like Abram was a stranger with no claim to the land, just wandering through trespassing on somebody else's property. That's what it must have looked like. And yet, in truth, what was actually true? Forget appearances for the moment. What was actually true? What was true was he was the rightful heir of that land. And the current occupants were the strangers. They were strangers to the promises of God, Paul says in Ephesians. They were outside God's purpose. They just happened to be squatters on someone else's land. You see how the world's view and our view based on the word of God can often be totally opposite? And even more than that, look what Abram does when he gets in the land. He pitches his tent by the oaks of Moray near Shechem. Now, that may not sound very meaningful at first, but this is an important place. And it becomes important historically to the nation of Israel. But it was important even in that day for the sake of the Canaanites. The Hebrew phrase there, translated oaks of Mamre, can also be translated terebinth of the teacher, which is another way of saying a center for pagan education and idol worship. It's where the Canaanites went to be schooled on how to be pagan and occultic. This is the center of their universe for the sake of their own teaching and practices in the occult. This same place, by the way, appears frequently throughout Genesis and elsewhere in Scripture, and it's always associated with one theme, Israel invading idolatry. God's people invading and taking the idolatrous world. You'll see that come up over and over if you look at it throughout the Old Testament. But here it's done for the very first time. Abram comes in and pitches his tents in the heart of the Canaan paganite culture. He invades it. And in the course of that invasion, he declares by his own life, just by his presence, that this is one day going to become Israel's and later, ultimately, the Messiah's. It's the equivalent of when the explorers arrived in Antarctica with a flag and walked into the middle of nowhere with no one around by and large and stuck a flag at the South Pole and said, I claim this for Britain or whoever did it for who did it first. I don't know. Usually it's Britain. But that's what this guy just did. He put a flag of sorts in the ground outside of Shechem by the Oak of Mamre, and he calls this place God's by promises that he received. Symbolically, I guess, shining God's light into the lostness and the darkness of that place. That's what Abram just did. Now here's the power of faith plus obedience. Here's the power of what faith plus obedience can do in the world. Just as James taught, if your faith isn't put into work, it's useless. It just sits there. In your heart, yes, but going nowhere outside that point. 
And when our faith is put into action through obedience to God's call, it becomes a mighty thing. It holds the power to do what Abram just did, penetrate into lostness and into darkness, delivering the light of the hope of Christ. He had no claim of any in the world as far as the world was concerned. That didn't stop him one bit. He walked straight into the heart of that other culture and he said, I'm here, God gave me this. And he sets up the kingdom of of sorts. And he knew that the day that land would be his was long away. And in the meantime, he serves God by doing what God called him to do. And in a sense, the mission that God gave Abram is exactly the same one he gives us today. God has not rewritten the rules, so to speak. He's given us greater understanding of the gospel, of Christ, of all that goes with it. But the rules for what we do in serving God are exactly the same. Exactly the same. We have a faith and we have a call to serve God. Abram had faith, man of faith, we're told, and he had a call. God has told us to leave our dependence on the world, just as I read out of Matthew. And Abram is told to leave behind his father's house and his inheritance. He was told to walk to a place God would show him. We are told to walk away from what holds us and binds us to this world and follow the leading of the Spirit. That's what we're told. And we've been made to share in the promises of Abram just by faith alone. You have the same hope of inheritance that he has, though our inheritance will vary. Now, the Lord has told us, like he told Abram, that you're going to a place I will show you. In our context, we know that means into the world around us, lostness and darkness being all around. And we're not to shrink back from that call any more than Abram did from his call. And you're going to do just what he did. You're going to walk confidently. You're going to reach the point God sends you. You're going to pitch your tents somewhere in the heart of paganism and idolatry. And you're going to do what an ambassador does. You set up a small version of the distant kingdom so that where you exist in that world of darkness and lostness, they have a picture, a scene of what it looks like in the kingdom that is coming. You become an ambassador. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if anyone therefore is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How many of you have heard Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians when he says, you are a new creature? Strictly taught in the context of, you are a new person. We've been made new by Christ's work of salvation, the Spirit indwelling us. We're new. That's true. New spirit, new life, new destiny. But Paul puts it in a different context when he actually says that phrase. The context he's talking about is we have a new lifestyle, a new calling, a new purpose. That's his first concern as he mentions a new creature. Look, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come, and then the next verse he says, now these things are from God. And he goes on to list that we are to go out reconciling the world through a ministry that God has given us as ambassadors for Christ. That's what new means here. I mean, it is important to know that we are new spiritually. That's the basis for what we can do. But to simply sit at home and be self-satisfied about the fact that, yeah, I'm new in Christ, and not actually go out and be the ambassador, 
you're recognizing your salvation. That's a good starting point. But you're not moving to the next step, which is go out committed with the word of reconciliation. That's Abram's model. Idol worshiper, living in Ur, converted to the man of God, moving into lostness and darkness, committed with the word of reconciliation. Now, he wasn't there to evangelize for Christ's sake in the same way we are called. He had a different purpose. But he was an ambassador. Paul says we are ambassadors. This recent team we just sent to Juarez, the seven individuals who came back and experienced firsthand what it means to step into lostness and darkness. If you have a chance, and I hope you do, take one or more of them aside on a, on a moment or before or after church or during the week and ask them for their experiences. We'll hear a little of that during the meeting we do on the 11th. They'll have a chance to talk to us about their experiences, I hope. But I can tell you without even having them stand up here with me, and I'm sure they'll agree with me, that they saw the power of God at times working firsthand through the people who were living through the situation we all know is going on in what is. And they were there as ambassadors with these people, invading lostness, invading darkness. You can't think of a darker place than, than this place in our own backyard. And yet it's also a place that I've seen firsthand, God doing new beginnings left and right, changing lives, starting churches, calling people to himself, it's as if God has his best work in circumstances where the darkness is the greatest. He stands out the most. I think his glory is magnified by that contrast. But you don't have to go to Juarez to be an ambassador for Christ. Right? We know that. This may shock you, but uh, Austin is filled with paganism. There is plenty of darkness outside the walls of this building in the city of Austin, and in every city, but in this city as well. And if you're called to live in this city, then I don't have to make a huge leap to conclude that you're therefore also called by God to be an ambassador to Austin. Is that really a big leap? And if so, then we collectively are appointed to break into that world of lostness somehow with whatever call God gives us personally, wherever he centers us in the city, and be an ambassador in some context. That's our call. We can ignore it, but it doesn't change it. And that truth, as pictured here by Abram, that fact should influence everything we think or do. Because as a new creature in Christ, that's what the newness was all about. And when we obey, like Abram, God goes with us. He doesn't ask us all to preach or stand up in front of other people, perhaps. Abram, for that matter, he just walked. As far as we can tell, the guy walked and he lived and he moved around. That was the extent of his formal ministry. But as you'll see with me as we study through the life of Abram, it had a tremendous effect on the people of, of Canaan, of the Shechemites and others. It was enough to make clear God's presence was in the land. It was enough to testify to the truth of the promises God had given him. Look at verses 7 through 9. Look at this man's work in such simple form. In verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai in the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Very simple, right? Hey, the guy's just wandering around in the desert building altars. Okay, this is exciting. What now? What next? Isn't there some point in this? But don't think of it that way. Look at it from another point of view entirely. 
As he obeys God's call, God appears to him a second time, the second time we hear of this recorded. And he tells Abram as he's pitched his tent, you're in the right place. This is the land. This is where I was calling you from. You've reached the place I told you to go. And this land I will now give to your descendants. And with that, Abram gets a new detail he did not have in the first revelation God gave him. Now he's learning that the land that he's been given, he himself will not fully possess. In fact, he won't possess it at all. It is reserved rather for his descendants to receive it. This is probably the moment when Abram fully came to understand that the land was not to be his in his own lifetime. It was going to wait for a future time in which God would eventually fulfill those promises. Now, at this point, as we watch him moving, first from Shechem, then down to near Bethel, and then on down into the Negev, many of you have been taught, or at least assumed, I think, that Abram, by his nature, by his lifestyle and tradition, was nomadic. The guy that lives in tents, doesn't really have a home anywhere, moves with the cattle and with the sheep as they move around. That's nomadic. And you see it taking place here, so the assumption is he was a nomad. But that's forgetting his history, if you think that. Think about the guy's history. He lived in a prosperous city, Ur. Not a nomad, living in a city. And then, even after he left the city and went to Haran, he stayed for decades with his dad in Haran, another city. He's not a nomad. Not by tradition, not by training. He is no more nomadic than you are. If you have a house or an apartment, or if you have somewhere you call your home and you're there on a reliable basis, day in and day out, you're not nomadic. He was like that. But now what's he doing? Since he arrived in Canaan, he's been living in tents, roaming around the countryside. You'd think if he was focused on staying in the land, the first priority would be to find water and build a house and settle down, right? Or maybe just to be even easier about it, go to one of the cities. Find a nice place, buy a little home somewhere, set up residence in one of those towns. Why has he not done that? Again, if you assume, well, it's because he's nomadic, that's a bad assumption. This is a change for him. Hebrews tells us why he started to adopt this new lifestyle that he's never previously held. Hebrews 11.9 says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob fellow heirs of the same promise. Why did he do that? Well, verse 10, for he was looking for a city which has its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Think about what this writer is saying about this man, Abram. He was not nomadic by tradition. He chose to live nomadically as a matter of faith. As a purposeful distinction from his past life, he says, I'm going to live as if I don't have a home. That's like if one of us, all of us, were to get rid of our house and get rid of our permanent residence and just start living in hotels or on the street or in the park or you know, whatever we could find and just keep moving around constantly, not because we have to. In fact, we're relatively wealthy. If you look at Abram, he's relatively wealthy. But doing it as a matter of faith because it's a statement. You know, Abram wasn't called to stand on a corner and preach, as far as we can tell. But he did it. He just did it with his life. Notice where he goes. He's outside Shechem, not in the city, but outside the city. Then when he moves, he moves to a place between Bethel and Ai. He had two cities on either side of him, and he consciously chose to live between them, in the desert area that there's nothing. And then he moves into another desert, the desert of the Negev. This is a guy who's on a mission to not set foot in a city. 
That's a statement. We'll see that even more. If you know the story of Abram, there's going to be some moments later in which he has some confrontations with some of the kings in the land, and the kings have to leave the city and come out to the middle of nowhere where he's pitched his tent to talk to him because he won't enter the city not even once. Why do you think he's doing that? Folks, this is the Abraham equivalent of when you and I live in the world, but we're not of the world. When we consciously distance ourselves from what the lifestyle of the world preaches, so that by that distinction, we have a witness opportunity to talk about why we feel so differently and why we are called to live so differently. How many of you that went to Juarez had somebody you know wonder if your head was on straight when you said you were going to go to Juarez? Normal people don't go into war zones. True. We're not normal. We're not. We're new creatures in Christ, ambassadors sent out into the world with a message that the world needs to hear. So we will act differently. The shame is when we have that message in our hearts and we choose to live just like the world and thereby we neuter the message because no one knows the difference between us and the world. That's what Abram is showing us here. It's simple as the narrative is. It's foundational and it's profound. Here's a guy that's left everything behind. He's still got wealth. God's still blessing him. And yet by faith he's chosen to adopt a lifestyle that screams in his day to the difference of what it means to be a man of God following promises and not the world. That, that is Abram's testimony through his lifestyle. Now, don't overreach in thinking about how this applies because this doesn't require automatically that we all sell our homes and quit our jobs. And, you know, it doesn't require that we mimic Abraham. It requires that we be obedient like Abraham. But what God is calling us to do is the measure of obedience. You don't become obedient by mimicking Abraham. You become obedient by doing what God's called you to do. And unless he's called you to live just like Abraham, don't do that. Do what he's called you to do and what I will be called to do, which will mean a variety of things. But in all cases, it means not being sold out to the world, but rather being sold out to Christ. Not letting your fear or worries about what you will have in this life dominate your interests such that you aren't concerned about what you need or have in eternity. That is a foundational truth for all of us. But how it actually looks in an everyday sense will vary. It's about being sure of God's call. As he stops, and we'll finish on this point, as he stops in that moment at Shechem and he receives God's word, we're told he builds an altar. He builds an altar. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, today we don't build altars. In fact, there's a reason why you don't see one in this church. In fact, you should never see an altar in a Christian church. And by an altar, we, we mean specifically a, a stone or some other kind of material table that's set up as such as an altar. Because an altar is, by definition, a place of sacrifice. The whole point, the whole reason altars were even established in Scripture to begin with is so that there'd be something on top of which an animal's blood could be spilled and the spilling of that blood was sacrificially an offering to God, either for sin or for some other purpose, but it was all around the sacrifice. Now, the writer of Hebrews has told us that Christ himself paid the one and only sacrifice necessary for those who are in faith called into the family of God. And because of that one sufficient sacrifice, there is no need for any other Knowing that, believing that, means we should testify to that faith by getting rid of altars. (laughs) They serve no purpose anymore. They actually confuse people about what is the purpose of altars and sacrifice. 
No other sacrifice is required, so we shouldn't imply that there is one necessary by maintaining altars. The Word of God, though, gives us an equivalent. If we wanted to mimic the obedience of Abraham in the way he sets up this altar so that he can worship God in thanks, what do we do today? If we don't have stone altars, what do we do? Well, Romans 12.1 gives us the specific way to do it, 12.1 and 12.2. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not, listen to this, we often forget 12.2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen to what he just said. He says, we repeat Abram's example, this example of which he created an altar and he presented an animal sacrifice. That's what he did. If he built an altar, you can be sure he also made a sacrifice. That's the whole point of an altar. We can repeat that step of obedience when we present ourselves as a holy living sacrifice. That's our spiritual worship, he says. Making our bodies gods at his disposal. And then, and the part that I find most important, We had Abram proving God's will. Abram was demonstrating or proving God's will to the Canaanites by the way he lived among them in the land. He was like a walking billboard, right? By his own life, by what he did, he's like a billboard screaming to the Canaanites, this is God's will, meaning God has given me this land. God has made promises. This will be his people's land. That's his statement. That's the will of God being proved through his life. We have the same call. We prove God's will to the lost and dying world that's around us by how we listen to God's word and allow it to transform our lives in some fashion. We become a billboard. That's what he means when he says proving what the will of God is. We're to be made Christ-like. And if we're made Christ-like, we represent Christ in the world just by who we are, not just what we say. So that's Abram's example. The man of faith at work. He's called a friend of God. He's called the father of faith. Why does scripture give him such accolades? Most of us rush to chapter 22, the joke I made about the ram, the moment in which Isaac is taken to the mountain under God's direction and Abram's about to kill his own son as God had directed. We think about that and we think, God, how could he have done that? What a testimony to his faithfulness. I don't think I could have even taken step one, much less walked all the way to the top of the mountain and raised the knife. You know, we, We'll get to that in chapter 22. We think of that moment, and that's a very important moment. But it didn't start there. Could you go live as a nomad? Could you take all the wealth that God has given you and forget it and pretend you didn't have it and live as if you had nothing? Not because it's somehow a a work that impresses God. No, it's only because you wanted to testify to the world about the difference in following God. Could you do that? That's tough. I'm not sure I could. So before we get to the sun on the mountain thing, just look at what he's already doing. Look at how he starts his walk with God. I also want you to remember this because when we get to the next part of the chapter next week, the guy's not perfect. He's not perfect, and he'll make some mistakes along the way, as will we, which is in itself, I guess, an encouragement for us. But he walked in faith, which was the saving grace that he needed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and think about these things this week as God lays a call on each of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Abram. Thank you, Father, that we have been shared, given a chance to share in his call, though, as well, that 
he stands not merely as a testimony of faith, a, a man, a titan in the, in the scriptures, a man who we can look up to, but perhaps from such a distance find it difficult to relate to. Rather, he is a man like us, a man who has left behind a world that he loved, has been called into a new life, which he was unclear about and perhaps even had apprehensions over. And yet, Father, each day of his life, he took one step in the direction you pointed him and you were there with him the whole way. And he made decisions to follow you and to be a testimony of you and and to seek the lost in the world in the way you gave him to do so. And that was his call, Father. We share that call and we also understand that, like Abram, we don't do it apart from you. So I ask, Father, that what we've learned today would seek and go into our hearts and begin to cause us to think differently at times about what we do and how we do it. We would consider Abram's example and examine our life in light of the Scriptures. I do ask, Father, that as we continue to reach more people in the city of Austin, and perhaps some would join us here, that we would take advantage of all that you give us and the strength of this body, and we would put it to work in seeking the lost and reaching into darkness and showing the light of Christ. Let us understand that purpose above all so that we don't seek to serve ourselves, but to serve you and to serve those you send us. All of these things, Father, we ask in the Spirit, knowing that by his power and strength alone we do what we call, are called to do. And bring us back next week, Father. I pray that every week, for it is a privilege to join with others, and we ask for that opportunity on a continual basis. Thank you, Lord. And we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.